Section 8 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gray Clayson. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3 by George W. M. Reynolds. Section 8. Chapter 8. Seven Dials. There is not in all London a more extraordinary locality than that which bears the denomination of Seven Dials. Situate in the midst of one of the lowest and worst neighbourhoods throughout the metropolis, and forming a focus where seven streets, converging towards that point, meet like as many streams flowing into a common reservoir, the open spot of ground called Seven Dials is a lounge for all the idle vagabonds and ill-looking persons, men and women, who occupy the cellars and garrets in the vicinity. From the centre of the open space alluded to, the eyes may plunge their glances down into the circumjacent thoroughfares, narrow, dark, filthy, and formed by dwellings of an appearance so miserable or so repulsive that they equally pain the heart and shock the sight. If the wanderer amidst the mazes of this vast city were desired to point out the chosen abode of poverty and crime, taking as his guide the physical aspect of all the worst neighbourhoods, he would probably indicate Seven Dials and its branching streets. The shops are all of the lowest and dirtiest description. Nauseous odours impregnate the atmosphere. In winter the streets are knee-deep in mud, save when hardened by the frost, and in summer they are strewed with the putrefying remnants of vegetables, offal, and filth of every description. Half-naked children paddle about in the mire, or wallow on the heaps of decomposing substances just alluded to, greedily devouring the parings of turnips and carrots, sucking the marrow out of the rotting bones, and rejoicing when they happen to find a mouldy crust a morsel of putrid meat, or the maggot-eaten head of a fish. Neglected beings, too, are they, knowing nothing save blows, curses, and hunger at home, and learning naught save every corrupt habit and ruinous vice abroad. How can we be surprised if such an infancy becomes imbued with those evil principles which jails and treadmills only tend afterwards to confirm? and which give ample promise of occupation for turnkeys, penal settlements, and the hangman. The established church is maintained at an annual expense of several millions sterling. The clergy belonging to that church claim the right of educating and instructing the people. And yet in no country in the civilized world is there such an appalling amount of juvenile depravity as in England. For ourselves, we declare we repeat that our government, our legislature, our clergy, and our great landowners are all guilty of the blackest turpitude in permitting hundreds of thousands, I millions of children, to be neglected in so horrible a manner. If a child be seized with a malignant, infectious, and dangerous disease, what will be said of the father who looked on indifferently, who omitted to call in medical advice, and who beheld with equal calmness the furious malady spreading amongst the rest of his offspring? 
should we not denounce should we not execrate such a man as a monster deserving of any penalty which our statutes could inflict yes a thousand times yes by a parity of reasoning then do we hold up to abhorrence those men who seize upon the reins of power merely to gratify their own selfish ambition also those men who accept seats in the legislative assemblies and fritter away the time of a great nation in their own party squabbles those men too who put on black gowns preach sermons as a duty rendered in return for the enjoyment of enormous revenues and then declaim against the wickedness of those millions whom they do not attempt to reform and lastly those men who wring the sweat from the poor man's brow to distil pearls for themselves but who care not for the welfare of that poor man's offspring hundreds of thousands of pounds are annually subscribed to further the objects of foreign missions the scene of whose labours is in far-off lands scarcely known to us by name and amongst a race with whom our sympathies cannot exist but beneath our very eyes crossing our paths constantly displaying their loathsome rags to our view are small children innumerable whose only training is for the prison the hulks and the gallows talk not to us of christianizing barbarians in the remote islands of the south seas when the children of so many of our own fellow countrymen and countrywomen are but barbarous christians at home let the reader who imagines that we exaggerate the amount of the evil we denounce let him take his stand any evening in the midst of seven dials and well consider the scenes around him it is said that there are seven cardinal sins at the point where we would wish our sceptical reader to post himself he may command a view of seven streets each one presenting to his contemplation some new phase in the common sphere of hideous poverty and terrible demoralization mark the population of that neighborhood consisting of seven streets with all their connecting lanes and alleys with their dark filthy courts and their murderous-looking nooks and passages of what does this population consist men brutalized by drink or rendered desperate by poverty and in either state ready to commit a crime women of squalid wasted and miserable appearance who being beaten by their husbands and fathers revenge themselves upon their children or their little brothers and sisters poor shopkeepers who endeavour to make up for the penury of their petty dealings by cheating their famished customers wretched boys and girls whose growth is stunted by suffering whose forms are attenuated through want and whose minds are poisoned by the scenes of vice dissipation and immorality which open upon them at their very birth what hope what promise for the future do such beings as these hold out in consternation and sorrow mingled with the most awful misgivings do we survey the picture which we are now compelled to draw and our feelings are thus painful because we know this picture to be correct and yet we call our country merry england merciful heavens what a mockery is this name can england be merry while the most hideous poverty is the lot of half her population 
while her workhouses are crowded with miserable beings who must for ever resign all hope or idea of again enjoying the comforts of home while the streets are filled with loathsome wretches clad in filthy rags which barely cover them shivering with the cold or fainting beneath the intolerable heat and spurned from the doors not only of the rich but also of the very officers appointed to relieve distress while the poor mother maddened with the idea of her own destitution and houseless condition presses her famishing child to her breast which yields no milk and then rushes in desperation to consign the innocent being to the waters of the nearest stream while the wretched father stifles his children that he may hush for ever in their throats the cry of bread bread that vain and useless cry to which he cannot respond while innocent babes and prattling infants bear upon their countenances and exhibit in their attenuated frames all the traces of the dread and agonizing pangs of a constant gnawing craving never satisfied hunger and while hundreds annually die around us of starvation and absolute want merry england indeed what is england joyous when the shop of the pawnbroker thrives royally upon the immense interest wrung from the very vitals of the poor when the jails the hospitals and the workhouses are more numerous than the churches when the hulks are swarming with convicts pent up in frightful floating dungeons amidst a fetid atmosphere when the streets throng with unfortunate girls who ask to be redeemed from an appalling traffic but see no avenue of escape from their loathsome calling when the voice of starvation the voice of crime the voice of discontent and the voice of barbarian ignorance echo up to heaven and form such a chorus as could scarcely be expected to meet the ears beyond the precincts of hell and when seven-tenths of the entire population are wretched oppressed enslaved trampled upon miserable degraded demoralized merry england but let us continue the thread of our narrative two of the thoroughfares which converge to seven dials bear each the name of earl street passing from high street st giles towards st martin's lane we must request the reader to turn with us to the right into that earl street which lies between the dials and one extremity of monmouth street halfway up earl street stood a house of even a darker and more gloomy appearance than its companion its doorway was lower than the level of the street and was reached by descending three steps the windows were small and as many of the panes were broken the holes were mended with pieces of dirty paper or stopped up with old rags altogether there was something so poverty-stricken and yet so sinister about the appearance of that tottering dingy repulsive-looking dwelling that no one possessing an article of jewellery about his person or having gold in his pocket would have chosen to venture amongst its inmates and who were those inmates the neighbours scarcely knew certain it was however that over the rickety door of the house were painted the words tobias bunce taylor but few were the jobs which mr bunce ever obtained from the inhabitants in the vicinity 
for his manners were too reserved too repulsive to gain favour with the class of persons who might have patronised him and yet there appeared to be no signs of absolute poverty in that dwelling mrs bunce was one of the adjacent butcher's best customers a public-house in the dials was known to be regularly visited by her for the beer at dinner and supper-times and the pints of gin were occasionally purchased by the same mysterious customer at the same establishment she was as averse to gossiping as her husband and her neighbours declared that they could not make her out at all she always paid ready money for everything she had and therefore the tradespeople were the staunch defenders of the bunces whenever a word of suspicion was uttered against them who then were these bunces let us step inside their dwelling and see if we can ascertain it was about eight o'clock in the evening a few days after the incidents related in the preceding chapters that toby bunce his wife old death and the lad jacob sat down to tea in the ground floor back room of the house which we have been describing toby bunce was a short thin pale-faced sneaking-looking man of about forty he was dressed in a suit of very shabby black and his linen was not remarkable for cleanliness his coarse brown hair was suffered to grow to a considerable length and as he seldom treated it to an acquaintance with the comb it hung in matted curls over his shoulders his nails were equally neglected and resembled claws terminating with blackened points his better half as mrs bunce indeed was not only figuratively but also literally was a tall thin scraggy lantern-faced woman with a sharp green eye a vixenous pug nose and a querulous voice for although she was excessively reserved when she went out to do her marketing she made up for that silence abroad by an extra amount of garrulity at home her age exceeded by a year or two that of her husband and as she was totally devoid of that sentiment which is so generally ascribed to the sex we mean vanity she did not scruple to acknowledge the above fact indeed she often advanced it as an argument to prove that she must know better than he and as a reason for her assertion and maintenance of petticoat government but if vanity were not her failing avarice was her ruling vice and to gratify her love for gold she never hesitated at a crime in this latter respect mr bunce was no better than his spouse save that his anxiety to obtain money was not always equalled by his readiness to face the danger occasionally involved in procuring it any act of turpitude that might be accomplished safely and quietly would find no moral opponent in the person of toby bunce but when some little daring or display of firmness was required he was forced to supply himself with an artificial energy through the medium of the gin bottle the room to which we have introduced our readers was furnished with bare necessities and nothing more a rickety greasy deal table four or five of the commonest description of rush-bottomed chairs a long form to accommodate extra company and an old portable cupboard fitting into one of the angles of the apartment and a shelf to serve as a larder these were the principal articles of the domestic economy the table was spread with a varied assortment of crockery 
none of the cups matching with the saucers, and no two cups or no two saucers alike. Toby Bunce, having succeeded in inducing the kettle to boil by means of sundry bits of wood sparingly applied, his wife Betsy made the tea, while Jacob cut the bread and butter. I wonder whether Tom will keep his appointment, said Old Death as he sipped his tea. It's a full hour past the time I told him to be here. And we've been waiting for him till the fire got so low that he took a power of wood to make it burn up again, observed Toby Bunn. Suppose it did, cried his wife. You know very well that we don't care about any expense when our best friend, Mr. Bones, is with us, she added, glancing towards Old Death for the Bunces were among the very few of that individual's acquaintances who knew his real name. And yet I should think he would not fail, continued Old Death in a musing strain. His conduct seemed straightforward and right enough on the very first day we agreed to terms, and he even gave me my regulars in a matter that I'd nothing to do with. But it was well for him that he did so, or else he'd have been laid up in lavender for want of bail. Bertinshaw and Watkins did it pretty tidy, said Jacob, who was making prodigious inroads into the bread and butter. Keep your observations to yourself, growled old Death in a surly tone. Remember, I haven't forgotten your negligence in losing sight of Tom Rain the other day when he left the police office. It wasn't my fault, returned the lad, his dark eyes flashing angrily. I kept lurking about the court after I'd been up here to tell you that Dykes had nabbed Mr. Rainford. I saw him go over to the coffee-houses soon after he was discharged. I followed him when he went in a coach to Pall Mall. I dogged him back again to Bow Street. And then... And then when the Jewess's case was over, you saw him come out again and you lost sight of him, interrupted Old Death angrily. But never mind, he added, softening a little. I will set you to watch him another day when you've nothing better to do, and we'll find out all that I want to know about him. When did you see him last? inquired Toby Bunce. This morning at Tullock's, and... Old Death was interrupted by a knock at the street door, to which summons Jacob hastened to respond. In a few moments he returned, accompanied by Tom Rain, who sauntered into the room with a complacent air and a chimney-pot hat stuck on the right side of his head so you are come at last tom said old bones alias old death his toothless jaws grinning a ghastly satisfaction well better late than never but let me introduce you to my very particular friends mr and mrs bunce and as they are good friends of mine they will be good friends to you this crib of theirs is convenient in more ways than one, added the old man significantly. And you will find it so if you ever want to lay up for a time until the storm which must menace one sometimes blows over. The hint may not prove useless at a pinch, said Tom carelessly as he seated himself on the form. But there's someone present whose name you've not yet mentioned, old chap and he glanced toward the sickly lad who was occupied with the edible portion of the repast. Oh, that's my Mercury, my messenger, my confidant, or anything else you like to call him, said Bones. His name is Jacob Smith, for want of a better, and he's a perfect treasure in his way. 
he can send an officer two streets off and would prove the best scout that ever a general commanding an army could possibly employ now you know his qualifications and if you ever want to make use of them he is at your service well my lad exclaimed tom rain your master gives a good character of you and mind you continue to deserve it he added in an ironical smile but what is to be done now old fellow this question was addressed to bones who accordingly prepared himself to answer it there's something to be done to-morrow night my dear boy began the old villain his dark eyes gleaming from beneath their shaggy overhanging brows and there's money much money to be got but the thing is a difficult one and requires great tact as well as courage you must suppose beforehand that i am the person to manage it properly said rain or i should think you would not have applied to me very true tom returned old death with a sepulchral chuckle very true the fact is you're a dashing genteel-looking and well-spoken fellow when you choose and you can insinuate yourself into the good graces of the best-born gentleman in the land i am sure you can do this don't you think you can tom i should rather fancy i can replied rainford by no means displeased with the compliment just paid him but go on explain yourself and we shall then see what can be done listen attentively said old death between streatham and norwood there stands a pretty but lonely house occupied by a gentleman named torrens he is a widower and has two daughters the eldest of these girls is to be married the day after to-morrow to a certain mr frank curtis the nephew of the wealthy sir christopher blunt it appears that mr torrens has fallen into some difficulty through over-speculation in building houses at norwood and sir christopher has consented to advance him five thousand pounds on condition that this match takes place for the girl it seems is totally opposed to it she has another lover whom she loves and she hates mr frank curtis but the father insists on sacrificing his daughter to whom curtis is greatly attached and curtis possessing influence enough over his uncle sir christopher to persuade him to advance the money all this is clear enough said rain and nothing would give me greater pleasure than to balk sir christopher frank curtis and the selfish old father but i do not see how the business can in any way benefit us i will tell you my dear boy replied old death with another chuckle expressive of deep satisfaction to-morrow evening sir christopher the nephew and sir christopher's lawyer will set out for torrens cottage as the place is called they will settle all the preliminary business with the father to-morrow night so that the marriage may take place the first thing on the ensuing morning well said tom inquiringly seeing that old death paused and two thousand pounds out of the five will be conveyed from london to torrens cottage to-morrow night continued bones unless he added significantly something happens to stop the money on its way but who will have the money upon him sir christopher the nephew or the lawyer demanded tom ah that's the point to ascertain cried old death you must exercise your tact in solving this doubt and your courage will afterwards effect the rest 
did i not say that this business required alike tact and courage you did indeed answered rain and i can scarcely see how the deuce the thing is to be managed still two thousand pounds would prove very welcome but how came you to learn all this thy knight's servant my dear boy is in my pay returned old death with a triumphant grin ah i have many gentlemen's and noblemen's domestics devoted to my interest in the same manner and by their means i learn a great deal but to return to our present business two thousand pounds are to be paid down as an earnest of the bargain to-morrow night and those two thousand pounds will be much better appropriated to our uses i perfectly agree with you old fellow said rain could not the knight's servant inform you who is likely to take charge of the money impossible cried bones but he will most probably accompany the party and how will they go demanded rain a thought striking him on horseback answered old death sir christopher and his nephew have a great opinion of themselves as riders and the lawyer mr howard is a sporting character it is therefore sure that they will all go on horseback then leave the rest to me cried tom rain snapping his fingers what time do they set out at six o'clock was the answer good again observed tom it's as dark then as at midnight this time of the year say no more upon the subject the thing is just the same as if it was done provided your information is correct and no change takes place in the plan as at present laid down by these gentlemen one word however describe sir christopher's servant to me a short thin dapper made fellow dark curly hair face marked with the smallpox replied old death drab livery turned up with red his name is john jeffreys enough said tom i shall call at tullock's to-morrow between two and three in the afternoon and if you have anything fresh to communicate you can either leave a note or meet me there if i neither see nor hear from you at that time and place i shall consider that all remains as you have now represented you have nothing more to say at present nothing replied bones after a moment's reflection won't you take a drop of brandy and water mr rainford just a little drop inquired toby bunce with a deferential glance towards his better half a little drop stupid you good big drop you mean cried the shrew isn't mr rainford a friend of mr bones and ain't all mr bones's friends our friends i'm sure if mr rainford would drink a, 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 a pint of brandy she added emphatically defining the quantity she felt disposed to place at the service of the new acquaintance he is quite welcome no thank you said rainford i must be off the business of to-morrow night requires consideration and he was interrupted by a knock at the street door and toby bunce hastened to answer the summons end of section eight recording by gray clayton